welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. This week, we learn all about cryptocurrencies with the chief of the UK's self-regulatory body for crypto assets, Ian Taylor. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And welcome along to this week's programme. Marcus, how's your week been uh, this last week? Yeah, all right, thanks. I think, the um, uh, as you know, I'm a big follower of the election drama and then, of course, you know, in US politics in general, and it does seem to be dying down a little bit there. Um, it does also seem, I would say, that I don't think Congress will actually uh, convict Trump, even though the impeachment has gone through and they lost a vote to allow it through to the Senate there. So, um, you know, that'll be an interesting one to watch, see if they if they convict him as now a private citizen. Um, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, no, it will be, uh, very much so. Oh, I've been pondering this week um, where next for my portfolio, really. I've, I've sold a few things that have done well, but they were just duplications of things that were elsewhere in my portfolio. So, you know, I had two sets of European investments that were doing pretty similar things. So, really, I've just mm. been looking at other opportunities. Where can I diversify to you know, a bit wider. I haven't made any decisions, um, but I am looking forward to your interview next week um, with uh, Darius McDermott about alternative assets because I've been thinking about student accommodation or maybe music song rights, so, something just to move away from the mainstream a little bit. So I'll be uh, I'll be keen to see what he's got to say. Yeah, um, absolutely. And he specifically mentions music rights there. So definitely tune in for that. It was a really good interview with Darius which segues us quite nicely into markets, really. It's been a bit of a change, and we're seeing a bit of a souring from that really positive sentiment that we saw at the beginning of the year. So starting with the US, the Department of Commerce has released Q4 economic figures, its GDP figures, and they're showing a little bit of a climb down from Q3 figures. This is because the first round of stimulus really faded in that final quarter, and also the virus surged quite a lot. So it means this second round of stimulus couldn't come any sooner. And undoubtedly, Biden will use this data to help push the Congress naysayers to agree to the upper end of this $1.9 trillion bill that he has proposed. Markets are also reeling over the GameStop saga, where US retail investors have aggressively been buying into the stock in order to create some losses for Wall Street short sellers. Simon's going to address this in just a sec, just to give you more detail. And all of this outweighed the good news, which was, you know, investors are looking to earnings, to profits that, that companies are releasing. And we saw Apple and Facebook go pretty strong with the profits profits they were posting. Um, and, and on top of that, the Fed also came out and it, it, it recognises the weak economy and it said it will keep on track with its loose monetary policy. So that means keeping interest rates low, things like that. In Europe, across the pond, optimism is waning really on pandemic worries that are resurfacing. There's the prospect of longer restrictions that are looming. New variants are emerging that could upset the virus, the, sorry, the vaccine bandwagon a little bit. And concerns are bubbling over vaccine nationalism. So this follows a spat between AstraZeneca and the EU over a shortfall in supplies to the bloc and the reticence of Britain to reach into its stores and make up that difference. In the UK, gloomy data is beginning to show a little bit of, of the bite of Brexit. Stuff is getting held up at ports, which is adding to the economic strain that's already been wrought by COVID. And in Asia, markets will be watching 
Taiwan and China, I think, a little bit over the coming weeks. There's been some saber rattling over Chinese concerns that the island is is playing for for independence. All in all, the S&P 500 is down 105 points to 3,750. The Euro stock 600 is down 10 points to 400, and the FTSE 100 is down 223 points to 6,497. Simon, what have you got in companies? Well, I was just going to say before I move on, I, I know what you mean about the Brexit worries. I tried to buy a printer the other day and <laughs> literally not a single one in stock. I mean, Amazon is bereft of, of just household printers. It's, uh, I oh. guess they're all stuck in wagons somewhere. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, so company news this week, as, as you've alluded to, I wanted to talk about um, these two specific companies. And, and it's really a battle between private uh, retail investors, to use the jargon, and professional investors that's been unfolding over the uh, last month. So the companies in questions in question are a hedge fund manager, a company called Melvin Capital, and a, a video game shop called GameStop. You've mentioned them. Just before we get into it, though, a bit of background on hedge funds and how they work. I just want to contrast them with an ordinary fund manager. So an ordinary fund manager buys shares in a company in the hope that the share prices of those companies are going to go up, and that's how they make their money. A hedge fund manager, he can do that too, but he can also do it in a way where they profit when share prices go down. Now, if everyone can do that, you know, why don't they? Why doesn't everyone make money when prices go up and down? Well, the answer is that betting on shares going down is incredibly risky. Let me give you an example. If an ordinary fund manager bought shares for, I don't know, a pound, and then uh, held that as a what's called a long position, the most he could lose is a pound per share, because if they went to zero, he'd lose all his money. If the shares go up, then he makes money. Great, good times. But in a hedge fund, they bet on the same pound share, but they bet on it going down. And if they actually do go up, then their losses, of course, are uncapped because the pound share could be worth £10, could be worth £100, could be worth £1,000, any number bigger than one. So it's very, very risky indeed. But the aim here is for the hedge fund to make money. So it's in their interest if the share prices of the companies they're targeting go down. Now, in this case, Melvin Capital has been shorting GameStop, hoping that the share price will go down. The practice has caught the imagination of a group of private investors, though, on the Reddit social media forum. They're in a a group called Wall Street Bets. And in particular, it's really riled those people who see shorting as exploitative. They're exploiting the company. And they're also alleging that hedge funds uh, do so. You know, they manipulate markets in the process of doing that and indeed manipulate media to their own advantage. So this group of retail investors got together, started buying shares in GameStop, more demand, same number of shares out there, ultimately the price goes up. And in fact, it's gone up by more than 1,500% just this year, in the first few weeks of January. So that's good for people who own the stock, obviously, taking these long positions, but it's the opposite for a short position. Bad for Melvin Capital. And in fact, they've lost £3.75 billion in the first three weeks of the year. So we're not talking about small money here. And in fact, they've actually had to go cap in hand to larger rival hedge funds for a bailout to the tune of 2.75 billion 
just to keep them going before they could close their position. Where will it end? I don't know. But the other hedge funds have been cutting their short positions as private investors seek to buy shares in other shorted companies. Seemingly the White House has now got involved and said there's going to be an investigation into this murky world. But as we stand right now, GameStop share price has gone from $17 at the beginning of January to $347 at close last night. Our advice, steer clear. Or if you like gambling, you know, put £5 each way on number seven or something at, at Kempton Park. Anyway, news done. Let's turn now to our feature interview. And this week we delve into the world of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Marcus spoke with the chief of the UK's regulatory body for crypto assets, a chap called Ian Taylor, to find out more. Now, unless you've rather understandably decided to shy away from the anxieties of current news flow, you probably will have noticed reports on the surging value of Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency, which is a form of digital money powered by an emerging technology commonly known as blockchain. Likely worried about some poorly informed bets from members of the public, it's prompted the UK's regulator, the FCA, to wade in and advise some caution to individuals thinking of investing and to ban them from buying any crypto-based derivatives such as contracts for different CFDs. So, to help you properly understand how they work and the investment risks and opportunities involved, I have with me today the Chief of the UK's self-regulatory body for crypto assets, Ian Taylor. Ian, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. Ian, let's start with the underlying technology. I mean, it can be quite complex to understand. I'm not totally sure I've got my head fully around it yet. Um, it's known as distributed ledger technology. So what exactly is this technology? And also, why has it been so groundbreaking as it's emerged in the past 10 years? Sure. Well, DLT, distributed ledger in its simplest form, is a database, um, a store of information that lives on multiple computers that are distributed in different locations. So effectively, not a centralized um, information. Really, the benefits center around security and the fact that there's no central point of failure. Um, and so underneath uh, the DLT um, sort of technology idea are blockchains. And so blockchains have a unique set of attributes themselves, which include security, such as cryptography. Um, they can be public or private. Um, they have a native token that, that's uh, born out of the, the blockchain. They're immutable, which means that records can never be destroyed. Um, and they can be open to anyone participate in securing the blockchain, providing the security of the network. Um, blockchains promise significant benefits um, to answer your point about groundbreaking. So what we've seen recently is a lot of development around such areas, supply chains, where you can provide the provenance of a, of a diamond, um, where it was um, dug up from, for example, or in financial services, we're seeing many blockchains uh, reduce intermediaries that, that take place when settling a, a transaction. Yeah, that's really interesting. My father works in the textiles industry and um, one of the applications there they were looking at was cotton and where that originates. Um, so mm. lots of interesting applications. So how then has this been taken to create this, uh, this technology being taken and applied to create cryptocurrencies then? Yes. So as I mentioned, um, blockchains, they have what's called a native token and that digital token is then 
um, has been termed cryptocurrencies um, or crypto assets. So currencies is a bit of a misnomer in the fact that you think it's money. Um, Bitcoin, for example, is, is the biggest um, crypto asset, but it also was designed to be money um, in the original white paper that was released in 12 years ago. However, we haven't really seen that as a use case, mainly because of the price volatility. Um, and I can talk um, briefly around how crypto can never be classed as money because it's a government that issues money. Um, in the UK, crypto assets or cryptocurrencies, the terms are used interchangeably, um, is considered property. And we've seen some case precedent in the courts in the UK to that effect. And also from a tax perspective, crypto is regarded as property and therefore taxed as capital gains tax. Okay, so if we think about currencies in the more traditional form as money, you know, they're issued by states and to some extent they're, they're backed by those guarantees of the state. So what underpins the value of a cryptocurrency? That's a really good question. Um, and we did see recently, um, as you mentioned, the UK government has banned the uh, sale of uh, retail derivatives um, and exchange traded notes to retail customers in the UK for that reason. They, they mentioned two reasons. One of them was the inability to understand a fair value or price of the underlying. Um, now, you could argue that government money isn't, isn't backed by anything. It's just the promise that the government will give you back a five pound note when you approach the central bank. And we've seen examples in recent times in Argentina and Zimbabwe where loss in confidence of the government results in hyperinflation and hyperinflation and everybody's wealth is, is wiped out due to that. Now, what underpins the value? Well, many folks would argue that it's, it's speculative and, and perhaps it is. But we know that embedded in the, uh, the protocol or the underlying code software of, of Bitcoin is a monetary policy that is deflationary. And by that, I mean it, the design is there's a fixed supply. There'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins ever produced by, by, by the software. And that will occur in the year 2040 at some point. We know this by design. It's all written there in the code. Um, therefore, what that means is supply will stop and demand as we're seeing right now is increasing and if it continues to increase we know that that supply and demand factor will result in price increase hmm. so there's an algorithmically determined rarity to the asset so the forces of supply and demand will influence the price and then i guess you would say that the blockchain technology that underpins that is then responsible for transporting that value and ensuring that it's safe and encrypted well there's two two aspects you could, you could argue that crypto assets are money for the internet. So we know that the internet provided us with access to information, the ability to transfer information immediately. So that's what crypto assets do. And they enable you to transfer value. Now, not just a payment, but also a utility and access to um, a, a particular service in the future. And it's, it's worth also mentioning that many people describe a Bitcoin as um, digital gold insofar as gold only has a fixed supply also, but is a, in, for that reason, it's an inflation hedge. So we've seen a lot of interest from institutional investors in the last year coming into crypto for that reason, to, to hedge against potential inflation where we see governments printing a lot more money and increasing the, the money supply in their, their jurisdictions. Okay, we hear a lot of about, you know, there's different currencies out there that you can go and invest in, uh, you know, to give a few Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin. Um, why so many? What's the broad sort of difference between these? Okay, well, the UK government um, 
defines their taxonomy in three categories. And this is broadly in line with the rest of the world and the community as well in the private sector. So we have three categories of token, we call them digital tokens. Um, first is a payment token. So that would be Bitcoin, specifically designed um, as a transfer of a payment, um, irrespective of whether you would use um, Bitcoin to buy your coffee because the price moves around. But there's other solutions to solve that problem. Um, and then there's the um, utility token. So Ethereum falls into that category. And the definition is that you own the token and, and you have a, a right is conferred to you by acquiring the token um, for a future benefit, um, a utility benefit. So in the case of Ethereum, um, you are providing a transaction fee or you're receiving a transaction fee for securing the network. But there's also other examples such as Filecoin. So Filecoin, the idea is that I have space on my hard drive um, and I sell that space using um, the blockchain and holding the token um, and getting benefit from that token where someone else needs space and they buy the space from me. And it facilitates that utility and transfer of value. And the third um, category is security token. So the security token um, in its simplest form is similar to real world assets. So you can tokenize or, or, or split into many, many parts, gold, for example. And then if I wanted to invest in gold, instead of buying a, a block of gold, which is not that easy and expensive, I could have a fraction of that gold and that's tokenized. Interesting. How pioneering is, is the UK in terms of, you know, crypto assets globally? Well, yeah, Crypto UK, we believe we have a really good ecosystem. Right now we have 60 members. We know that there's some... 200 to 300 businesses operate in the space from the current money laundering regime that the FCA is is introducing for crypto asset businesses. So say so they won't, so that'll stop any any bad bad behavior happening there. Um, and also we know that the UK is a fintech global capital. We have great access to resources, good rule of law, good technical capabilities, um, and a government that's willing to support the development of, of tech in the UK. Okay, so what do you reckon the key challenges are then for the industry? Well, that's a good question because there's a whole bunch of challenges. The first one would be policy and regulation. It's interesting because the interest industry has been saying for many years, we're crying out for regulatory clarity from the government. Um, so I always say, be careful what you wish for, because right now in the UK, we do have some clarity. So I mentioned the um, what's called the money laundering regime. So all crypto businesses would have are held up to the same standard as other financial institutions in terms of the due diligence they do on source of funds and their customers, um, which is great. Um, also in regarding promotions, um, and we've seen a lot of bad advertising for crypto firms promising high returns. So there's now with crypto businesses are falling into the same um, regulations as financial service companies. Um, and then thirdly, there's a consultation out right now regarding stablecoins and general regulation for other types of crypto service providers and crypto assets. So we're getting the regulatory clarity. So um, this is a challenge for industry because what we do is we advocate for fair and balanced approach because it's, it's a new industry that's unregulated. So it's important to make sure that we allow firms to do the right thing and to adhere to these, um, understandably, um, protecting consumers and protecting against economic crime, but at the same token, allow firms to develop um, and grow in, 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 in a fair and balanced approach. And then the other two main ones I will mention are uh, perception uh, of senior lawmakers um, and the wider public that crypto is used by criminals and nefarious actors. 
Also, banking relationships. It's really hard for crypto businesses to get banking relationships in the UK, which is a shame because you can't run a business without having a banking relationship. And that's because of a number of reasons, the perception, the risk appetite, the way that they assess the risk involved in businesses. Um, and then finally, we, we have concerns that if regulation is too, too strong, let's say, then businesses can go elsewhere um, into other countries and create jobs and in, in improve the, the economy there. I mean, is this tougher than other countries? Because, you know, my understanding was that we have a, a sort of regulatory sandbox mm -hmm. that enables firms to um, investigate new technologies and innovations away from the glare of big regulation. Um, it, does this help in the UK? Is it applicable to cryptos? Um, how does it compare to other jurisdictions? Yeah, Mark, that's a, that's a good question. The, regular, the FCA regulatory sandbox is, is world-renowned and, and is a, something I hear a number of members and folks in the community that I talk to uh, hold up as a really good initiative. Um, there's a, lots of blockchain companies and crypto companies that are, are in the, the current cohort or pre, have been in previous cohorts of the sandbox. Um, yes, we, we are open for business. We are very good as, as a, a country, the government and the public sector and the private sector in developing industry. We have a ways to go. There's other jurisdictions that are more friendly for this industry. The thing is, it's a balance for the government to protect the consumer, to protect against economic crimes such as terrorist financing and money laundering, but also allow for that development of new um, uh, businesses that are startups that don't have that many resources, don't have the capital. So that's sort of where we come in um, at Crypto UK. It's the bridge for, for both the public and the private sector. Um, all right, let's get on to the recent rally. You know, we've seen Bit Bitcoin's price um go pretty wild. It sort of did a threefold rise since October and then has had a bit of a pullback. So what are the reasons behind this climb and this in this volatility? Well I'm no expert in in the trading of, of the underlying, but there's and there's there's many, many folks in the community that make this their full time job. But but my my personal view is as we've seen um, the and as we've seen the regulatory clarity that I mentioned, with that regulatory clarity, then comes institution involvement. So we've seen PayPal, for example, um, allow uh, their customers now access to crypto. And so that has driven the demand for purchasing crypto assets enormously. So that pushes the price up. We also saw Fidelity, the large um, US um, wealth and fund manager, issue a statement last year that they said that all in the US in the survey they conducted, majority of fund managers have at least 30% um, of their portfolio in crypto assets. Also, we've seen corporate treasurers look to um, Bitcoin, for example, and other crypto assets as a diverse um, portfolio play. Perhaps 1% um, of, of their overall holdings would, would be in crypto. We've also seen Facebook talk about a stable coin. Um, it was initially called Libra. They changed the name to Deem. That's supposedly going to be released this month. So that's causing a lot of interest, whether it be on the institutional side, as I mentioned, but also on the, on the retail side. And it's just self-fulfilling, isn't it? When the price goes up, the media look at it, and then people read the stories and people start talking about it. But it's still in its infancy. I remind your listeners to be very careful when investing. It is volatile. Um, but we are seeing a development of a number of financial products such as futures and options that can be used to hedge, can be used for price discovery, which will in time reduce the volatility. Mm, I mean, yeah, the FCA came out, I've got to say quite strongly, it seemed in their in their statement. 
which was mm -hmm. investing in crypto assets generally involves taking very high risk with investors' money. If consumers invest in these types of products, they should be prepared to lose all of their money. And I thought all was quite a strong word to use in that sense. I mean, do you think this statement is fair? And how would you describe the risk profile? I, I, I think it's, it's strong as, as, as you suggested, but it's also, it's fair in the fact that you could lose all your money, um, just like you could lose all your money buying a share because a company could go bankrupt and then there's nothing left in the pot. You know, different assets have different risk profiles. So if you if you if you are risk adverse, then yeah, don't buy equity, buy buy bonds or hold cash. Obviously, interest rates are so low, you wouldn't be doing uh, the, the latter. And that's again another reason why folks are interested in Bitcoin, for example. And as we see the evolution of um, the industry, we're now seeing interest rate products offered. And by that I mean, you can now buy Bitcoin, lend it on a platform. Um, and receive double-digit interest rates. You can't get it anywhere else. But to your point regarding the FCA, we work closely with the FCA, and it's their remit to protect consumers and to protect uh, financial stability in the UK, along with the other regulators, such as the Bank of England and, 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 and Treasury. Um, and so this release was really just to talk to the increase in price and to the point at that there's more focus now as the price touched on you know the highs earlier uh, a few weeks ago so it's the right thing for them to do because the, the damned if they do if the damned if they don't right mm -hmm. yeah and i think it is fair to say it's quite speculative at this stage mm -hmm. i mean in terms of accessing it for the retail investors presumably there's a direct sort of coin approach but are there funds that enable you to invest in a number of coins that might diversify some of these risks that are inherent? Yeah, well, we've seen um, many applications made in the US for the uh, so-called ETF, Exchange Traded Fund. So this allows the investor to gain access to the underlying without actually holding the underlying. So a spot transaction, for example, you wouldn't have to go and buy it. Um, these are in development. Nothing has been um, released yet. There is an exchange traded note, which is slightly different. It carries a little bit more risk um, than exchange traded fund. Um, that, that was banned in the UK for retail derivatives, but there's one that's listed on one of the uh, Swedish stock exchanges. Um, and what we also see is the UK is not allowing you to bring um, crypto yet into your ISA, for example, but the equivalent in the US is called the IRA, the IRA. And you can, there are companies that provide access to retail consumers if they want to diversify as a, in a tax efficient wrapper, they can um, purchase um, the underlying crypto, not actually hold it, but, but through say an ETF or an equivalent um, if, they, if they want access to the invest in it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The US there being a potential lens to see the future trends here. I mean, where do you see the future of crypto? You know, could it be a de, a de facto replacement gold, as some commentators suggest, you know, a, a, an asset that people flock to to protect themselves against things like inflation? It's it, it's like the beginning of the Internet. Um, when I was at university so many, many years ago, and I just started using the, the, the internet, did I think that I'd be sitting at home streaming TV into my house? Did I think that I'd ever buy clothes on, on the internet? And obviously lockdown, I think many, many people have really, really embraced um, using the internet for, for many aspects of life. So as I mentioned, 
crypto assets are, 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 are really, the internet was crying out for them. They are the way to, the, 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 the money for the internet. But more than that, they can provide access to value, as, as, as I mentioned. Right now, the overall size of the market is $1 trillion, um, just over. Now, a lot of people are saying $10 trillion uh, valuation is coming. What time period? I don't know. But what I do know from you know, my basic technological history is that we, we see fundamental shifts. Now, is this as big as an industrial revolution? Probably not. But I can, for me personally, this is only my view, in five to 10 years, crypto assets will be ubiquitous in the majority of people's life, just like using your smartphone is for everyone across the globe. And there's the other benefits as well that, that, that I should just mention to you to your listeners, such as the unbanked people in countries such as Africa that don't have bank accounts, don't have addresses. Crypto allows those folks to join um, the financial ecosystem. Yes. And and this is assuming, I'm just going to ask one last question here, that the issue of the environmental impact might be got around because that is one issue, isn't it? It's the amount of energy that's Mm -hmm. required within this particular technology that has to be solved, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good point. And a lot of naysayers will look to the fact that just the Bitcoin network uses approximately the same amount of energy as a country, the size of Switzerland. It's just insane. If you if you think about that, and what, what does Bitcoin actually do? Does it really provide any value to society? Well, not really, and not yet, but it's the potential. So to your, answer your question, there are people solving this. There's men, what we call in the world of technology, different layers. On the stack of technology, you have what's called a layer two solution. So you will build something underneath the layer one, which is the Bitcoin blockchain, which increases um, transaction time, increases the amount of transactions that could be stuffed into the block, thus reducing the amount of energy and i won't get into the details of of different types of protocols because there's many protocols so-called proof of work which is bitcoin and proof of stake which are other uh, which are other protocols and and these new uh, protocols been around for a while proof of stake for example they solve that problem they do not require the same amount of energy for a number of reasons it's just like providing a stake into the system um, you have skin in the game therefore you don't have to go through that 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 large amount of transaction a large amount of mathematical problem solving that i mentioned before ian taylor thank you very much for joining me most welcome well that was a fascinating interview i had a quick look at this myself um as we've been going through this process of recording and uh, i mean apparently it's actually quite difficult to buy a bitcoin especially um you know, given the, the the questions raised about where money comes from and and how it's used, it's very laborious uh, process. Actually, opening an account, you need to prove where your money has come from. You need to you know become a member of an exchange to be able to do this. But actually, uh, once once you're in, um, it's pretty. I'm told it's pretty straightforward. I've done it for myself. I'm told it's pretty straightforward. But it it, it is uh, it it isn't just like going on and buying a share in a in a company. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing is you know the volatility here. Really, I mean, it, it hit its peak. On the eighth of Jan, at uh, thirty thousand pounds per Bitcoin, um, just over thirty thousand and seventy-seven, um, we're now down at twenty-three thousand three hundred forty-two. So today, so you know that that shows you that you know that's something in the region between twenty-five and thirty percent, you know, loss there from that peak within a matter of weeks. So. Uh, caution advised this is volatile and you can see as we discussed why uh, the fca was pretty was pretty cautious about this 
Okay, so on that note, it's time to end the show. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Ian for that very interesting interview. If you like what you heard this week, please do share this podcast with your friends, family, and indeed anyone who you think would benefit. Join us again next week for Alternative Assets. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.